and Happy New Year. Welcome to our podcast on activity supporting consistent application covering the last quarter of 2020. I'm Petrina Buchanan, a member of the ISB's technical staff, and I'm here today with Sue Lloyd, Vice Chair of the Board and Chair of the Interpretations Committee. And again, we're recording this podcast remotely. Now we've got a lot to cover, so I'm going to get going and talk first about the Interpretations Committee meeting held in early December, which was again virtual. So at the December meeting, the committee had five topics on the agenda, all different and all interesting. They covered current and non-current classification of liabilities, IS-19 and how to attribute retirement benefit, cloud computing arrangements, inflation hedging and cash flow hedge accounting, and supply chain financing, which I'm going to start with. So regular listeners will have heard us introduce supply chain financing back in June when the committee published a tentative agenda decision. Now, supply chain financing, and specifically reverse factoring, is increasingly popular, and put simply, it's a way of arranging for a supplier to get paid earlier than its customer the reporting entity has to pay by involving a third-party financial institution, and it can actually reduce the cost of financing as a result. So the financial institution agrees to pay amounts owed by an entity to the entity's suppliers, and the entity then agrees to pay the financial institution at a later date. Now, the terms and conditions of these arrangements can vary widely. They range from those that change little for the customer, the reporting entity, who will continue to pay the same amount it would have paid the supplier on the same date, but allows the supplier to get paid early at a discount, all the way to arrangements where the entity can get significantly extended credit terms and pay more to do so. Now, the committee were asked two questions about how existing IFRS requirements apply to these arrangements. So firstly, about presentation. How should an entity present liabilities that are part of reverse factoring arrangements in the balance sheet? And secondly, about disclosure in the notes. What information should it disclose in the notes to the financial statements about these arrangements? The tentative agenda decision had walked through how to determine whether those liabilities are presented as trade and other payables, as other financial liabilities, or as their own line item separate from other items. It then went on to talk about the cash flow statement and how to determine whether the cash outflows in settling the liabilities or operating or financing. And finally, the tentative agenda decision highlighted the relevant disclosure requirements in IFRS 7 on liquidity risk, in IAS 7 relating to financing liabilities, and also in IAS 1. And I'd note in particular that the agenda decision describes how and why reverse factoring arrangements often give rise to liquidity risks for an entity. So the liquidity risk disclosure requirements in IFRS 7 are really very important. So, so what did the comment letter say in this tentative agenda decision and, and what did the committee decide? Well, the comment letters were broadly supportive of finalising the agenda decision to confirm how the existing requirements apply to these types of arrangements. And a number of letters were also supportive of the board considering an additional stream of work. So looking at whether we should add a standard setting project on supply chain financing arrangements to consider a need for more specific disclosure requirements that would apply to those types of arrangements over and above what's required today. 
So the committee unanimously decided to finalise the agenda decision. The board then discussed the agenda decision at the December board meeting. And listeners might remember that in our last podcast, I explained that some changes to the due process handbook that were made in relation to agenda decisions, including involving the board in the process of finalising agenda decisions. So this agenda decision on reverse factoring arrangements was the first agenda decision that went through that new process. So board members were asked if they objected either to the content of the agenda decision or to the committee's decision not to undertake standard setting in relation to the application of the existing requirements to these types of arrangements. And I'm pleased to say that no board members objected, so the agenda decision was published in December. So if you've got these types of arrangements in place, I really encourage you to look closely at this agenda decision. The question was an important one. It came in from one of the rating agencies, reflecting the fact that these transactions are ones that investors and analysts think are really important, and they want to have information in the financial statements that enables them to understand these transactions if they're material for an entity. And importantly, even though our standards don't use the words supply chain financing, there are applicable requirements. In fact, there are many requirements in different standards, and I think the agenda decision should be helpful in bringing together all of those requirements in one place. Great, thank you, Sue. Now, as you said, that agenda decision is now final, and it's available on our website and in IFRIG update. Now, the topic of supply chain financing will come back to the board for a discussion later in 2021. We have received quite a bit of input and feedback on a possible standard setting project on these arrangements, including input that we receive from investors. So we will provide that feedback to the board to help them decide whether to add a standard setting project to the work plan. And that project, if the board takes it on, would be looking at whether to expand the information already provided and look at whether perhaps there are more specific disclosure requirements needed in relation to these arrangements. So now I'm going to move on to the next four topics discussed by the committee and start with the classification of debt as current or non-current. Now the board issued amendments to IS1 back in January 2020 and those amendments clarified how to classify debts and other financial liabilities as current or non-current in particular circumstances. Now, having received a number of questions about those amendments, we decided to ask the committee to discuss three fact patterns to provide some clarity about how the amendments are to be applied. Now, those fact patterns all involved loans with covenants that require the borrower to maintain a particular working capital ratio that's tested after the reporting date. Now, why discuss these three fact patterns? Well, firstly, because these fact patterns were similar to examples people raised with us, but more importantly, because these fact patterns illustrate clearly how the new requirements apply. So we know the examples are simple. We could, of course, have come up with more complex cases, but by using what we viewed as simple fact patterns, we could illustrate some of the underlying principles and stakeholders would then have a greater understanding of how to apply the requirements to these fact patterns, but also to other fact patterns. So Sue, maybe you can walk us through this one, please. Sure. So in each of the fact patterns that we discussed, the borrower has to maintain a particular working capital ratio and it's tested after the reporting date, but within 12 months of the reporting date. 
And the committee's analysis is really focusing on the principle that's set out in paragraph 69D of IAS 1. And that principle says that a financial liability can be classified as current only if the entity has the right to defer settlement of the liability for at least 12 months after the reporting date. So the entity has to have the right to defer settlement for at least 12 months after the reporting date to classify a loan as non-current. And that means that an entity needs to look at and consider any covenants that it must comply with within 12 months of that reporting date. Now, paragraph 72A then goes on to state explicitly that this means that an entity must test its compliance with covenants as at the reporting date. So it says, if the right to defer settlement for at least 12 months is subject to conditions, for example, in loan covenants, that right exists at the reporting date only if the entity complies with those conditions at the reporting date. So put simply, if a borrower with a 31st of December reporting date has to maintain a working capital ratio of one that will be tested on the 31st of March, when it prepares its financial statements at the 31st of December, it needs to test compliance with that working capital ratio based on its 31st of December figures in order to classify the loan as non-current, assuming that it's not otherwise repayable within 12 months. So the borrower doesn't look forward and try to estimate what the numbers will be at the 31st of March. And what it expects the numbers to be at the 31st of March is basically irrelevant. So the test the board developed is a simple one. It's an objective one. It says that the borrower uses the information it has as at the reporting date and tests whether it complies with any covenants that must be met in the next 12 months, even if those covenants are contractually required to be tested at a future date. Now, I'm not going to go into detail to explain the particular uh, details of each of the fact patterns. They're set out clearly in the tentative agenda decision, but I'd encourage you to look at them. The committee agreed that the analysis and conclusions for each of those fact patterns did reflect the new requirements in IAS 1, and that's what's reflected in the tentative agenda decision. Now, Sue, do you think these outcomes were expected by the board when they developed the new requirements? Well, as a board member that debated and signed off on these amendments, then yes, I'm certainly not surprised by these outcomes. And not only me, uh, my fellow board members who attend and observe the committee meetings also said they weren't surprised by these outcomes. And so maybe it's useful to have a bit of background on why we got to where we did with these clarifications. So firstly, the underlying principle in paragraph 69D of IS1 wasn't changed by these amendments but its application has been clarified. And that was one of the intentions of the amendments because we knew there were some questions about the meaning of the words. And even though the board didn't change the underlying principle, we did spend quite some time in the deliberations deciding how best to articulate what the requirements mean in the context of covenants tested at future dates. And this is an area of accounting where people inevitably have different views about exactly where the line between current and non-current should be drawn. And I think it's fair to say there's no perfect answer that everyone would view as providing their ideal outcome for every possible fact pattern. The board could have made different decisions, but after extensive discussion and consideration, the board developed requirements that are objective. And I would say are relatively easy to apply because they don't ask entities to look out into the future to try to determine what they expect their future performance to be in the period up to the testing date. 
Secondly, these are final amendments that are already issued by the board, so it's not open for, for comment. But the effective date is some time away. Annual reporting periods beginning from the 1st of January 2023 is where these amendments come into effect. And the board intentionally included a long implementation period and, in fact, extended the um, application period during COVID for this narrow scope amendment, not because it was terribly complicated to apply or would require systems changes, but because we did anticipate there would be some changes in the classification for some financial liabilities. So I'm hoping that the discussion at the committee and the tentative agenda decision, which is open for comment, will help to highlight the amendments for preparers who may have been understandably focused on other things during this 2020 and that these discussions and information will be available well in advance of when any changes to classification will take effect. So in short, preparers have still got time to look at their covenants and renegotiate them if they wish to do so. Great, thank you, Sue, and, and thanks in particular for just adding some, some more flavour about the board's discussions when uh, the board developed those amendments. So I'm now going to move on and talk about cloud computing arrangements and specifically software as a service or uh, SaaS arrangements. Now, some of you may remember that back in 2019, the committee published an agenda decisions related to SaaS arrangements. And that agenda decision addressed how a customer accounts for fees paid to a supplier for the right to access the supplier's application software in the cloud. And in summary, the committee said it's a service. If the supplier controls the software and the customer obtains only the right to access that software over the contract term, then the customer doesn't receive an asset, you know, upfront at the start of the contract, but what it receives is a service over the contract term. Now, the question the committee discussed in December was on the same type of contract. But what this question asked was about how the customer accounts for any costs of configuring or customizing the supplier software. So the facts are such that the supplier controls the software, the customer has access to it, and to fully benefit from that access, there is some configuration or customization that needs to be done. So Sue, again, I'm going to ask you to explain this one. Sure. And I actually think this question is an interesting question. I know I say that a lot on these podcasts, but I think it's an interesting question because it really illustrates what we mean when we say that IFRS are principles-based standards because this agenda decision or tentative agenda decision really maps out how you think about the requirements in IFRS where there's not something specific to the particular account uh, question that you're accounting for. And so knowing where to start on this question is really the tricky part. So which standard applies? What question do you ask? And I think the committee's uh, discussion that's captured in the tentative agenda decision should be really helpful in that respect. So firstly, IES 38 is applicable. This is a software contract. And the first question the customer asks and has to answer is whether it should recognize an intangible asset in relation to the configuration or customization of the supplier's software. And the answer to that is often no. There's no intangible asset that the customer controls. In rare circumstances, the customization might result in additional code that the customer does control and might recognize as an intangible asset but generally there's no asset and the configuration or customization is a service. So if there's no asset, how does the customer account for the configuration or customization services? 
Now, IES 38 does have requirements that address that. Paragraph 69 and 69A of IES 38 require an entity to recognise the costs as an expense when the services are received, and then goes on to say that the services are received when they are performed by a supplier in accordance with a contract to deliver them. So to determine when to recognise the costs as an expense in P&L, the customer must determine when the services are performed by the supplier in accordance with the contract to deliver them. Now, IES 38 does not then go on to say anything further about how a customer would do this. In this particular arrangement, the customer would need to identify the services being received to determine when the supplier performs them. Is there just one service, the service of providing access to configured or customized software, or is there more than one service performed at different times? Configuration or customization services performed at the start of the contract, and then perhaps a separate service of providing access to the software. So in the absence of specific requirements in IES 38, the committee said that the customer looks to IES 8, which tells people to look to other standards and consider whether there are requirements that deal with similar and related issues. And in this case, the committee said that there are requirements that deal with similar and related issues, and they're contained in IFRS 15. So IFRS 15 has requirements that specify how a supplier determines what the promised goods and services are in contracts with their customers. So when determining when the supplier performs the services in these SAS arrangements, the customer would refer to those requirements in IFRS 15 and specifically the requirements on identifying performance obligations. So the tentative agenda decision essentially walks through that process, setting out the questions the customer asks themselves and then discussing the applicable requirements and how to determine the required accounting. Now, Sue, I imagine some listeners might be wondering about why the committee has, has said that a customer should look to IFRS 15, because in this case, the question is all about the customer's accounting, not the supplier's accounting. And surely IFRS 15 was written from the supplier's perspective, because it sets out how the supplier determines its accounting. And when developing IFRS 15, the board developed those requirements with the supplier in mind, not the customer. So is the committee now saying that a customer should always look to IFRS 15 in determining its accounting? The short answer is no. And that's because you're right. IFRS 15 is all about the supplier's accounting. The board very much had suppliers in mind when it developed IFRS 15, and there certainly isn't a general approach that means that when you account for expenses, you should always be looking at IFRS 15. So what's different in this case? What's different are the specific requirements in IES 38 that are applicable to these arrangements. Those requirements in IES 38 say that to determine its accounting, the customer must determine when the supplier performs the services in accordance with the contract to deliver them. And it's specifically because IES 38 requires the customer to determine when the supplier has performed the services that the committee concluded that in this case, because IES 8 tells entities to look for similar and related requirements, that the customer would look to requirements in IFRS 15 for this particular aspect of the accounting. Great, thank you, Sue. So I'm going to move on now 
to IS-19. And in the interest of time, I'm going to try and be brief on this one. So the committee received question about how to determine or not how to determine, but how to attribute retirement benefits to the periods of employee service for a particular defined benefit plan. So when does an entity recognise its obligation to provide retirement benefits and thus recognise a corresponding expense in a defined benefit plan where employees receive a lump sum benefit only under certain conditions. So they receive the lump sum benefit only if they are still employed by the entity at a specified retirement age, let's say at age 62. The benefit is capped at 16 years of service and the benefit is calculated using only the number of consecutive years of employee service immediately before retirement. So for this particular plan, would the entity attribute benefit from the date of its employment until the retirement age of 62? Would it attribute the benefit to only the first 16 years of service? Or would it attribute the benefit to only the last 16 years of service? So the committee's analysis and conclusion on this one are set out in the tentative agenda decision that's now out for comment. And in this particular fact pattern submitted, the committee concluded that the entity would attribute benefit to only the last 16 years of employee service, the last 16 years immediately before retirement. And that conclusion very much aligns with an example in IS-19, and that's example two that immediately follows paragraph 73 in IS-19. Now, I would emphasize in this case that the exact terms and conditions, the exact sort of fact pattern is critical to the conclusion reached. Any difference in those terms and conditions, even if only to one of the terms listed in the tentative agenda decision, could certainly change the outcome. So I think if you're looking in this, please bear in mind that the, the terms and conditions of the plan are, are all very critical to the conclusion. Can I button and say something else, Petrina? Absolutely. <laughs> I think the other thing that's important in this case is that the tentative agenda decision focuses very much on this example two in IAS 19. And I think what's important for people to remember is that this example is actually within IAS 19. So it's different to a lot of our standards where the um, examples are just illustrative examples. They're not part of the actual body of the standard, if you like. And so I think that makes this example particularly special in the context of this analysis. Great. Uh, thank you, Sue. I think that that is an important point, and I think it was something that actually came up as part of the committee's discussion. Uh, as you say, the fact that this example two is an embedded part of IS-19 itself. Great. So the final topic on the committee's agenda we're going to talk about is inflation cash flow hedge accounting. Now, hedge accounting is also certainly always on the more difficult list for me. And when we add inflation risk components to the discussion, then this is certainly a complicated topic that, again, I would suggest a close read of the tentative agenda decision and, and the supporting staff paper if this is a topic of interest to you. Now, Sue, because I'm particularly mean, I'm going to ask you to talk about inflation cash flow hedge accounting. Thank you so much, Petrina. Happy New Year to you as well. <laughs> so this question is about one of the most complicated aspects of hedge accounting. So I'm only going to highlight it to listeners rather than going into all of the detail that might be needed to really understand it fully. 
it's not a transaction that perhaps many entities enter into, but for those that do, it is a very important tentative agenda decision. And I think it's also important to point out that the discussion isn't about, you know, whether it's a valid economic hedge that entities should or shouldn't be entering into. We're very much focused on the narrower question of does IFRS 9 allow you to designate a cash flow hedge for this particular type of hedging? So the question asks whether cash flow hedge accounting in IFRS 9 can be applied when an entity has a floating rate instrument referenced to, for example, LIBOR and enters into an inflation swap that swaps the variable interest cash flows on that floating rate instrument for variable cash flows based on an inflation index. So specifically, the question asks whether applying IFRS 9, the entity can designate a real interest rate risk component of the floating rate instrument as a hedged item in a cash flow hedging relationship. And the committee concluded that this was not the case. And essentially that's because the real interest rate and therefore the effect of inflation is not a risk component that explicitly or even implicitly influences the determination of a nominal benchmark interest rate. So there is no identifiable variability in the benchmark rate based nominal cash flows such as the LIBOR cash flows on a floating rate financial instrument that is attributable to the real interest rate risk component as required by paragraph 6.5.2b. And because the real interest rate would be an implied residual risk component rather than a component that can be identified independently of changes in cash flows that arise from other risk components. So as you can see, complicated. So I really do recommend that interested parties look at the paper and the tentative agenda decision. Great, thank you. Thank you, Sue. So the committee's conclusions on all four of these tentative agenda decisions are now out for comment. Um, as Sue said, I know we say this all the time, but I think this was, was really a particularly interesting committee meeting given the variety of topics discussed. So please send us your comments if any of those topics are of interest to you because we really want to hear your views. And the comment deadline for all four tentative decisions um, is the 15th of February. So moving on away from the committee meeting, and there's just a couple of other updates that I think listeners might be interested in. The first is to say that the board published an exposure draft in November. It's an exposure draft we mentioned to you before. It's titled Lease Liability in the Sale and Leaseback. And that was a project that arose from a submission to the committee that identified a gap in the sale and leaseback requirements in IFRS 16. So in this ED, the board is proposing to fill that gap. Now, the comment period in that exposure draft is open until the 29th of March. And so we encourage everyone interested in sale and leaseback transactions to comment on that. And now finally, Sue, I'm going to ask you to perhaps mention the educational materials on climate related matters. Yes. So as everyone looks at how the world might operate post-COVID, one of the topics that occupies an increasing number of headlines is obviously climate change. And in particular, during 2020, it was a topic that was increasingly of interest to investors. Now, the board's ongoing project on management commentary touches on climate change and sustainability issues. And of course, the trustees are currently consulting on sustainability. But we've also received questions about accounting for climate-related risks using existing IFRS standards. Now, the word climate doesn't appear anywhere in IFRS standards. 
And the question is, does that mean that companies can ignore the effects of climate-related matters when they prepare their IFRS financial statements? And the answer to that is, of course, no. In a principles-based set of standards, there are requirements that apply even without specific labels being used in the standards. So to provide some clarity in this respect and to support uh, good and consistent application, we recently published some educational materials called Effects of Climate-Related Matters on Financial Statements, which complements an article published by one of our board members, Nick Anderson, about a year ago. And these materials do really a couple of things. Firstly, they remind entities that they must consider climate-related matters in applying IFRS standards when the effect of those matters is material in the context of the entity's financial statements taken as a whole. Uh, secondly, the materials provide examples which illustrate when climate-related matters are relevant in applying a number of our standards. So, for example, IES 16, IES 36 and IES 37. And the document actually includes specific paragraph references in IFRS requirements to provide some assistance for people applying the standards. And thirdly, it, the materials remind entities that there are overarching requirements in IES 1 that require them to take a step back and to consider whether any material information is missing from their financial statements once they've applied all of the specific requirements in the standards and that information could include information about the effects of climate-related matters. So we hope that these educational materials are helpful both for companies when they're preparing their financial statements, but also their auditors and regulators. And of course, ultimately, we hope that it's helpful for investors by improving the information that's provided by people preparing IFRS-based financial statements. Great, thank you, Sue. So again, that educational material is available on our website. And again, I encourage you to read because at least for me, I, I found it very interesting. So with that, that brings our podcast to a close. I thank you all for listening. Um, we hope, of course, that you found it useful. And as ever, please email communications at ifrs.org if you have suggestions for improvement. Thank you and goodbye.